This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. In his Twitter bio, Daniel Workman describes himself as a husband, dad, entrepreneur, creative, and footy fanatic. Combining all of those gets you a man on a mission to expose some of the cracks in American soccer from top to bottom and back up to the top again. In this episode, Daniel discusses when he first started to notice that something was wrong with soccer in our country. He also discusses how he went from being just a soccer dad to Eric Winalda's campaign manager. And he discusses the purpose of his own podcast called Soccer Works, which allows him to discuss his ideas for the future of American soccer. This episode is actually going to start with some clips from Daniel's own short but potent podcasts. Each episode of his only lasts two minutes and focuses on one specific area of American soccer each episode. And I would describe Soccer Works as a crash course in soccer problems and politics from a guy with a lot of firsthand experience. Now, before we hear from Daniel himself, just a reminder that this episode of the 343 podcast is supported and funded by the 343 Premium Coaching Education Membership. 343 are the proven leaders in possession-based soccer coaching education here in the United States. Yes, proven. From training eight-year-olds to graduating academy players to national teams and professional contracts, 343 has demonstrated expertise at virtually every level of the development process, and our premium education program shares everything that we've learned along the way. Why do we do that? To help you reduce your own trial and error time during that process. And how do we do that? By introducing you to a methodology that works. You can find more information about the 343 Premium Coaching Education Membership by visiting 343coaching.com. All right. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the 343 Podcast with Daniel Workman. Welcome to Soccer Works with Daniel Workman, where we take a brief look at how soccer works in the U.S. and around the world. On episode 31, we begin a multi-part series entitled Project Year Zero, where we lay out solutions to the dysfunction, disorganization, and disunity within the United States Soccer Federation. And Major League Soccer has a franchise system, and that system intentionally limits player movement, player salaries, player freedom, and and control of their contracts. It doesn't matter whether you are at the professional level, the amateur level, the youth level. There is no defined success. If you are a a youth player playing on a team, what are you playing for? Does does every match matter? Does every training session lead to progress or the next section or the next 
thing. Imagine if an American Messi or Ronaldo were born in West Virginia, New Mexico, or New Hampshire. Due to this US soccer philosophy, we would likely never know. US soccer is not bringing the game to all. It's making it more difficult to participate. This has got to change and the time is now. Go to wrk.mn forward slash soccerworks. Until next time. How are you, my friend? Doing good. How are you? Doing well. All right. Can you hear everything okay? I can hear it fine. Perfect. Uh, okay. 30 minutes. Tell me everything that's wrong with American soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, look, you can, you can get in and out real quick. Just, just sum it up in the system and structure and you can, you can pretty much cover everything. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I I was thinking about it and we were texting just, just a minute ago. Like, all right, well, you know, 30 minutes, it's kind of quick. I don't know how much, how much we'll be able to get to. And then I was thinking about it, like your episodes are two minutes long. (laughs) Right. So, right. and, and really, and really they're, they're not even, I mean, they are technically two minutes long, but the content's only about a minute and 30 seconds. Yeah. Cause you have the intro, the and the outro. The intro outro. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Well, let's, let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what your, what your podcast is, and then we can kind of get to why you started it. And then we can get back to some of the content that's being, that's being released there. Sure. So like the the idea of soccer works um, came about gradually over time. Um, I just kept seeing a recurring theme, and that was that a lot of people within the U.S. soccer family, and I'm not just talking about top level. I'm really more talking about like your average soccer mom, soccer dad, youth club, youth club coach volunteers, those kind of people really didn't understand or don't really know what our system is, how it operates compared to the systems that function around the world. And so I kind of was looking at that as kind of a big picture thing. And then the reason why I kind of settled on the short form podcast really came down to how do people consume content best? And I really just kind of did it as an experiment. I, you know, had a thesis in my mind that if I could create content short enough that could be consumed natively on any platform that you encounter it on, that the viewership or the, you know, listeners that the number of people that would come in contact with it would be exponentially better than trying to get people to funnel to a YouTube or an Apple podcast, et cetera. And that's not to say that long form podcasting is um, a bad thing or anything, nothing of the sort. I have plans to do longer form podcasts as well, but for the purpose of this, in terms of kind of trying to, reduce down issues to bite-sized consumable moments of content um i just felt like the format with the two-minute format would be best 
think you're onto something too, because talking about certain topics gets draining for people, especially if they, if they don't understand it and, and they right. get, you know, they, they get turned off or they become turned off to something that they're not necessarily interested in, even though it has a severe impact on their own environments. And, and a lot of times people just don't know that, or they're unaware of, you know, the decisions that are being made at the top adversely affecting them at the bottom or the middle, wherever they happen to land on the, on the, uh, soccer scale here in America. Um, yeah, I, I, I find that to be one of the hardest things to do, um, which is connect the dots because some of the dots take like multiple steps to get to how it affects me personally. So for a lot of people, it's like, okay, I understand you're talking about this and then that's kind of connected to this, but like, how does that affect me and my kid? And so you're trying to like walk them down this path and it's not necessarily always the easiest thing, which is why ultimately I think we have a lot of the problems we have because it is so difficult to explain some of these, you know, minute details, the minutia and how does that, how does something that happens in the U.S. Soccer Federation election or Major League Soccer affect some little youth club in, you know, middle of nowhere, Texas? And so trying to figure out, like, those dots, how they connect, how can you make that relevant and, and relatable um, has been a challenge, uh, not, not too difficult, but it, it has been a challenge in terms of trying to figure out how to connect the dots. Um, it's not simple. It's not like a little 60 second ad and we solved everything. Everybody understands. It's, it's not that it's not that easy. What was the kicker for you for, or maybe I should, I use kicker as a soccer pun, I guess, but what, what made the light bulb turn on for you? Like, when did you realize like, shit, this is affecting me too. Like these decisions are are impacting me, my son, my youth club, my little area where I am. Like, like what was the what was the light bulb moment for you? Um, I'll be I'll be honest. There's two things. One um, was I several years ago where was looking at like how um, how come there were not more clubs in our area so we only had you know a handful of clubs and we're not as pop you know as densely populated as southern california but still i was i was looking at it and and i was seeing a trend where most of the clubs were you know whitewashed they were suburbia they were prim, you know primarily and predominantly um you know white kids playing that's not to say that there weren't some minorities but very, very small percentage. And even though the county where we live um, is definitely, I would say, majority uh, white in terms of race, it was not that extreme in terms of the numbers in the club versus the community. So I was, that kind of, for me, was kind of like something's off here. And and the reason why that struck me was at the time, my oldest son was still playing baseball. 
And so um, he didn't go like full time. Soccer is the only thing I want to play until after he finished his spring nine year old baseball season. So up until that point, he was still playing baseball in the spring, soccer in the fall. So it was kind of six months on each sport. And in baseball, we had done because I, I had worked uh, at the at the local baseball um, park in terms of running the organization and was the president of the whole city organization there. Um, and we had actually run um, campaigns and efforts to get you know African American coaches to 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 get him to get more involved, to get more minorities playing, and we were doing a lot of you know proactive things to to increase that and. I was seeing a disproportionate um, level in the soccer side versus what we were seeing in the baseball numbers. And so that, that was the first thing. The second thing was Jaden had been uh, playing soccer kind of, I guess, as his, you know, full-time sport for about a year. Um, So right after world cup 2014, he turned nine. So that whole next year, so summer of 2015, um, we were uh, out doing some free community soccer training, or I was doing some free community soccer training, and and Jaden, my oldest, was out there with us. And so at the end of that, there were some Latinos playing some pickup soccer, and they were, you know, all Latino, and. Um, and so I turned to Jaden and I said, do you want to see if they'll let you play? And he said, sure. So I walked him over there and I said, hey, can you play with you guys? And they, you know, they said, sure. And so that began what still runs to this day, every usually Saturday or Sunday, sometimes during the week, Jaden and these grown, you know, adult Latino men all meet up and play soccer. And um, through that, I began to network and meet all of these different Latino communities in our area, and most of these kids were not involved in organized soccer at all. So those kind of two elements were really kind of driving me to go and start asking questions, like, what is going on? Why, why do I turn on TV and I see one thing, and then where I live locally, this is this doesn't add up and. And at first it was more of, is this a local thing? Is like, is this an us problem or is there something bigger? And so the more I began to investigate, the more I began to ask questions, the more I began to reach out to people and and connect with people, the more I realized this wasn't just us. This wasn't just local. This was a systemic national problem. And that's where it really, for me, began to become um, a passionate you know, thing that I was chasing, pursuing, being involved in. And people aren't going to know necessarily who you are, um, which it, it's not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not saying that as a slight, but they're, they're not going to know like to what level or to what degree you decided to, to chase down all of this information. And so it sounds like you, you know, around 2014 started to see these things in your local community. And if you fast right. forward, uh, you know, just just a few years, uh, all of a sudden, you are very, very involved behind the scenes of Eric Winalda's presidential U.S. soccer presidential campaign, and you and him right. are, are 
you know, very, 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 very close now. So tell me a little bit about how that transition happened from you just being in your local community to now being part of like a national conversation. So <clears throat> Eric and I have joked about this, um, that I he's a funny, a he, he's a funny guy, by the way, for people that, that don't know him. He's a funny guy. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, he's, he's, he's always making me laugh. Um, the, the 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 reason why Eric said that Dana, you, you need to write a book about all this is because of how I connected with all these people. How did all this get started? So for for the listeners, I live in South Alabama, right on the Gulf. We're like two hours west of where the hurricane just plowed through Florida. So we're we are literally right on the Gulf of Mexico. We, it feels more like Florida, the panhandle of Florida, than it does the rest of the state of Alabama. Um, thank God. And um, But this is kind of where I grew up. Uh, most of my life I've lived here, and um, it's where I live now. And so Eric, for for the listeners, lives in Southern California. He just recently... Um, took the job as the the, the manager and, and technical director of the USL uh, franchise in Vegas, uh, Las Vegas Lights FC. And so how did we get connected? How did you and I get connected? Uh, how did so many others around the country and in fact around the world, how did I connect with all these people? And it all began with Twitter. Um, I just began to connect, reach, reach out, follow people, uh, interact with people, and it and it was a natural kind of organic progression. So, you know, I would see people like John Townsend, Chris Kessel, yourself, Gary, and I would like what people were saying. I might would comment or you know interact, and then it would transition into some you know direct messaging, and then it would kind of leave the Twitter platform and, and enter into text messages and phone conversations. And then when I would travel, um, I would always try to, if I knew somebody was somewhere around where I would be, I would always try to meet up with people. So, you know, I, that, I had the opportunity to, to do that first with you when my family and I were out in California in the spring of 2016. Um, and I've done that all over the country. Um, meeting people. And that ultimately is what led to the connection between me and Eric. So we had a mutual friend in Atlanta and I had met um, our, our mutual friend in Atlanta um, the spring before he ran for president of U.S. soccer. So the spring of 2017. And um, <clears throat> so whenever I reached out to Eric and, and just said, Hey, you know, if you, if you want to run, um, I would love to just make some stuff for you. Um, cause I have a creative agency and a production company. So I was like, you know, I'll, I like what you're talking about. I'll, I'll, I'll just volunteer to help you out. Our mutual friend kind of vouched for me and, uh, Jay and, and he basically just said, Hey, you know, um, uh, you should take this guy seriously. He, he's a good guy. I've met him several times that kind of thing. And so that began this relationship, friendship with, with Eric and, um, and 
you know, went from just volunteering to um, running the entire campaign um, and traveling all over the country, meeting state association people and, um, you know, the, the people that run uh, Nike soccer uh, outside of Portland, uh, met all kinds of people all over the country um, through that that experience and uh it was it was enlightening it was fascinating it was disappointing it was a it was a a, a wonderful and yet sad mix of experiences as you kind of recall that that experience or those experiences and you mentioned you know being sad and, and disappointed uh in addition to uh, i'm sure you know some of the, some of the greatest moments that you've had and some of the greatest conversations that you've been that you've that you've had about American soccer, but what what makes you say that things were disappointing or or that you're sad after you know we're almost a year removed from or more than a year removed now from from when Eric kind of announced that he was going to be running for president? So you know a year later, why why are you why are you disappointed or sad about it? Well. I would say that a year later from the loss to Trinidad and Tobago, um, that for me is really the marker because I had, I had had conversations with people about what it would take for the country to wake up, to realize that we do have a lot of issues, um, issues of inclusion. And these issues of inclusion are not just about race and they're not just about you know, socioeconomic status and, and individualized issues. There are also issues of inclusion when it comes to cities and communities and states, like big systemic issues. And so I always thought that if we missed the World Cup, that the country would kind of, I wouldn't say riot or anything like that, but like genuinely be asking for answers and demanding accountability. And so this was my assumption. Um, and so my assumption was wrong <laughs> because the, the one thing that, that I didn't know going into the election was how the U.S. soccer structure is built to prevent reform. I didn't realize that going into it. So even though if you go and count the individual votes of the election, Eric won the popular vote by a landslide. He got more individual votes than any other candidate. But when you look up at the board at the end of round one, he was in third place. And you're going like to the average person, how does that happen? You know, we thought that he had all the support and there was a lot of support around the country, but the weighting of the votes is um it's like the electoral college but like in a really bad perverted version of the electoral college so it, it to explain it to people it would be like let's say that texas florida california and new york the four states by themselves control 50 percent of the electoral college and then every other state gets a piece of the rest and that's essentially what happens with the U.S. soccer elections. You have four councils. I've, I've covered a lot of this in the Soccer Works podcast. 
you have these you have these four councils they each have votes that are distributed but when you look at two of the councils the adult and the youth those are are distributed amongst you know 55 state associations for adult 55 state associations for the youth and then you have other organizations inside of those councils as well and so all these numbers start to get fractured so you could have you know 15 20 states that support a candidate and it, it's not going to make a massive difference in the outcome so you could have literally half of the country voting for you in terms of the state associations and you know the professional council and the athlete council together control you know over 45 percent of of the um, election results and the election you know power so then you're really fighting an uphill battle that's what really got me disappointed um what got me pleasantly surprised was the i was i had gotten cynical about a lot of the uh, people that work in the grassroots or in the state association level, the youth game, the adult game, because I just wasn't seeing changes. You know, I wasn't seeing a lot that was like, man, this is going to be better. Um, and what I was pleasantly surprised to learn through this was that there are a lot of great people out there who mean well they want to do what's best for soccer in the country they want to do what's best for their state or for their organization and they really do um want to do a great job um what i what i found though in that process is what i just talked about is that their voice is limited in comparison to say a major league soccer or the usl or the athlete council so those kind of things, when you get in behind the scenes, you really start to peel back the layers of the onion and you you really see that the inner workings of the Federation really do um, work against reform from a voting uh, procedure. Oof. All right. <laughs> I got. I have to let my brain inhale all of that really, really quick. Um, man, it's just like no, no matter where you look, you can go down a wormhole, right? And yeah, and, and you know, if you want to just focus on youth soccer, you can go down the wormhole, and you, and you could, you know, dissect that to infinity, and and come up with a bunch of different problems. You can do the same thing with adult soccer. You can do the same thing with MLS. You can do the same thing with the voting structure. So it really becomes this overwhelming task, I think, a lot of times, which is what turns people off to wanting to get involved in this. And, and so many times, even just the other day, somebody had commented like, you know, why don't you just enjoy what you have in, in front of you? Like, you know, just, just enjoy the soccer that you have and, and be thankful that it's there. It's like, well, no, like that's, that's the absolute wrong answer. And that's what they're trying to do is there is there they're trying to just you know make you in my opinion just so overwhelmed that you can't do anything like you you're paralyzed and that you just right. and, and that you just take it that you just accept what 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 is there and no like that's the wrong answer that's the wrong way to do it it's just finding well, finding guys like you that kind of take it from this you know 2 minute angle i think is is huge man 
and and, and that's going to help people get introduced to these topics and and get energy behind certain topics in a way that I don't think has ever been there before. Well, I, I would say this to some of the things you just mentioned. I I had some comments on and some back and forth on Twitter the other day because someone was talking about um, the youth soccer council that um, the, the new president, uh, Carlos Cordero is kind of, you know, this task force that he's trying to set up and, you know, all, all these kind of quote unquote actions that are being taken. Right. And so chiefs and, and everybody being appointed. Right. Right. And so some of the, the interaction was, well, you know, the, you got to figure out the youth game. You got to figure out this. And, and my point back to them is that everything is related that you can't solve our youth problems without addressing the adult amateur problems. And you can't solve and address the adult amateur problems without addressing the professional problems. Everything is related. And, um, you know, when we try to, and this is, this is one thing that I think the Federation has done really, really a poor job on for decades and that is segmentation and this goes back decades this is like pre-carlos cordero this is pre-sunil galati i'm not i'm not blaming them i'm saying this goes back way beyond them but the federation as an organization within the dna of the organization has adopted a segmentation policy or mindset philosophy call it call it that and that philosophy, what it does is it means that anytime we have an issue, we isolate it, we segment it, and then we try to solve it in a vacuum. And you never, there's never a sense of stepping back and viewing the problem as a problem in a system. It's a isolated, like, for example, we got to solve the youth soccer problem. All right, let's go get all these youth people over here, put them in a room, and let's talk about youth soccer. Well, how does that relate to adult amateur soccer? Why? My question is, why are they isolated in the first place? Should it, it if I go to Europe, right? I take my son to Europe. He goes to train. When he goes into that club, there's not an there's not a wall that says all youth players you go to this side of the complex all adult players you go to this side of the complex no they're all in one club even if they're not professionals you know the dads or the adult players that play in in the club that they're all in one club that they're a generational club so they're five years old and they're 50 years old and and they're one thing and yet in u.s soccer we we've created four distinct councils we've segmented all of these different we've pulled them apart rather than united people you know so we have all these clubs all over the country and you'll have like a team playing in the npsl and they have no youth system at all and then you'll have a right down the street a a youth soccer club that has no adult presence at all and we wonder why we have all these issues it's because we've Create it through this philosophy, all these separate silos, and not realize that by trying to isolate to fix, we've actually made the problems worse. 
Does that make sense? It does. And what comes to mind is like these NPSL summits that happen or these U.S. adult soccer summits that happen where these people get together and they discuss ideas for, you know, solutions and, and, and they try to identify problems. But like you said, they're only working within their segment. They're, they're, not, right. they're not working outside of that segment. So if you're only trying to fix problems, you know, in your, in your room, you know, that may, maybe like plumbing is a good example or electricity. Like if you fix the electricity in your room, that doesn't solve the electricity problem throughout the whole house, right? So right. that that what you're identifying is a massive problem and it goes to the conversation that I see probably most often where people talk about top down versus bottom up what is the right way right and so you have these people that actively try to convince the over you know the vast majority of people that it's a bottom up problem that if you fix the problems at the bottom that the top will get better. Absolutely right. false. Absolutely false. If you fix the bottom, the people at the bottom are going to rise for a little bit until they hit their glass ceiling, and then they're still fucked. Right. So, so no, it, it it's. I'm a, very... I'm a both end. I'm a both end. Yeah. In that conversation. <laughs> okay. Right. So I, I think that there, I think we have so many issues, right, across all of this generational landscape youth all the way through professional adults etc that we've got to fix the top and we have to fix the bottom and that it takes both to to fix they're, they're both interlinked right so take for example what would be a a top-down issue that would need to get addressed so what we could we could start with some obvious uh, FIFA violations. U.S. soccer violates FIFA rules on several occasions. So let's just take one of them. Solidarity payments and training compensation. So that's a top-down issue. That is a Major League Soccer does not pay local clubs for developing kids the way that every other club around the world has to. Their franchises don't do it. U.S. soccer doesn't make them. And that's a top-down issue that needs to get addressed. However, at the same time, if you fix that, now you're also addressing and working from the angle of the bottom up. Now you're getting funds into the bottom. What does that mean for the bottom side of things? You know, their operations, are they, are they being more inclusive? Are they making sure that um, the, the, the system that is operating for these kids in these communities are available to every kid in the community, not just a segment of kids in the community. So there, there to me are these interrelated issues that even if you take one of them, there, there's a way that it filters down. And then there's also a way that when you're working on things at the bottom, it connects and works up and filters up to connect with the, you know, the top, top end of the system. So, you know, how would that same policy from a bottom-up perspective affect MLS? Well, what if what if now these clubs around the country had this policy? Now, what if all of a sudden that they are paying MLS for a player now that they've got more funding? Now these MLS franchises are able to, you know, you're turning on this player economy that we don't have. 
you know, we don't have free movement of players in MLS and, and we don't have a, a vibrant player economy in the country. Um, and so th- these are the things that start to turn those lights on at the top and the bottom and really kind of, I think of it like the, you know, when, when there was this opportunity to settle the West and the, the U S basically said like, here's all these acres of land first come first serve everybody lined up and there was this land rush. I mean, that's what I, I think of when I think of American soccer, like if we just turn the lights on, there's going to be this massive soccer rush and there's going to be investment. There's going to be communities that, that totally go all in. And all of a sudden you're going to start to see a player economy develop. And because of our country, we have the greatest sports economy on earth. That that's that player economy is going to grow much faster than player economies around the world have traditionally grown just because of the economics, the, you know, the demographics of our country, et cetera. So that's why I, I always land on this as a both and issue. I, I think to isolate it from the top is is ignoring some things that do need to get addressed at the bottom, like segmentation, et cetera. But if you say, oh, well, let's just fix the bottom, the grassroots, and that'll just eventually bubble up and and change the quality level or the pressure at the top. I think you're being quite a bit naive. And my experience from working behind the scenes in U.S. soccer, um, that's never going to work. One One thought that has been on my brain lately is that we have so many people involved in American soccer that, you know, volunteer their time. The overwhelming majority of people are volunteering their time in the soccer community, right? But these people in their day-to-day lives have great jobs. Like, they they operate as part of our, uh, you know, United States economy as lawyers, as doctors, as teachers, as as very bright people, right? And so... I don't know what it is about soccer or about sports in general in the United States where all these super bright minds just completely fail to connect the dots. Like, like what, what is it about like this, you know, sports uh, monopoly in the United States where people just, just refuse to see past, you know, the, the surface. Like they just refuse to just peel back the onion. Like you, like you mentioned, earlier it blows my mind it blows my mind that american sports are able to get away with all the stuff that they get away with and you know people well, are going to say that i'm going to you know be wearing a tinfoil hat at this point but seriously like if you if you just look at this at the way that this operates it's so bad and so many people when they come to the, these conversations just don't understand i i would i would say this i was i was thinking about this the other day i actually talked about this on one of my recent episodes baseball so i grew up you know i loved baseball growing up and um i was researching something for for an episode about the the league format of major league baseball up until 1968 um the American League and the National League essentially operated as single table leagues. So 
if you were in first at the end of the, the regular season in the American League, you won the American League pennant, National League, same thing. And then those two faced off in the World Series. That was it. There was no, you know, championship series or divisional series or wild cards. None of that existed. So I think that a lot of our sports problems go back to baseball because the idea that we have sports monopolies in the first place came because of baseball. They were the ones that fought to get the antitrust exemption. And I think that they created this uh, cultural acceptance that in the, in, in the world of sport in America, we will accept a monopoly. We will accept a closed system and um, we will buy your narrative. And I think we've just kind of gotten conditioned to that. And I think that's where it started. Now, I'll say this. Recently, like the NBA, um, you know, they have the, the G League that, that has recently announced that they are going to provide an opportunity for players who do not want to go to college and do the one and done rule to play, you know, NCAA basketball for a year and then go to the NBA to go into this G league, make like 125 K a year. Um, and then, you know, have the opportunity at the end of that year to, to develop and then get you know drafted into the NBA. Now that is not an open soccer system at all, but what I I'm bringing this up to make this point, I think that, that the people that are, you know, in their 40s and under, and as you keep skewing younger, um, I think you're going to start to see a lot of skepticism about our, and I think you're already seeing it, about our current sports model in the country when it comes to the monopolies and the closed systems. Um, you go have a conversation with people and they talk about, you know, should NCAA players get paid? The the public overwhelmingly will support that the players, at the very least, if the, if the college is not paying them, that they should at least own their own rights. They, sh- they should be able to make money off of their own image and, and image rights. You, you see this over and over again in other other sports as well. And I think that as we get younger and younger and this, this generation gets the opportunity to be in charge, I do think you're going to start to see a shift um, from that monopolistic mindset that was started with baseball um, because baseball is losing its effectiveness. It's losing its popularity um, overwhelmingly, especially in the younger generation. And um, and so I think that I think we we're going to start to see some of those changes um because of it but you know it's it's slow it's not like turning on a light switch and everybody goes aha even though you would think it's america everybody would go oh that makes total sense um but i i want to i want to give you this uh i want to tell this story real quick (laughs) i had a i had i had a dad of mine i was coaching um my youngest son's rec team a couple years ago he's like six years old and this dad's a baseball guy and doesn't understand soccer at all. And 
we have a, a local minor league baseball team that is getting ready to move to the other end of the state. We're not going to have minor league baseball. So I said to him, I said, look, if, if baseball operated the way that soccer operates around the world, this is what would happen. If the Mobile Bay Bears, who play in the AA, won their league, and <clears throat> at the end of their season, they would get to move up to AAA. And if they won AAA, they would get to move up, and they'd be, they'd be playing the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Dodgers. And he was like, are you serious? And I said, yeah, that's how it works around the world. And I said, no, I want to ask you this question. And, and he goes, okay. If that system was in place, would you take your kids to the Mobile Bay Bears games more often? He said, absolutely, because the games would matter. I said, now, let me ask you this. Would the Mobile Bay Bears be more heavily invested in their community because they're trying to find the next best baseball player for their team? He said, certainly. I was like, that's what we don't have in American sports. That's what happens in soccer around the world. And in that five-minute conversation, the light went on for him. And so that was also one of those moments where I was like, I've got to be able to explain this to other parents because they need to understand what is at stake, but also the opportunities that are in front of them. Yeah, that reminds me of my childhood when I used to grow up going to the semi-pro, I guess it would be considered semi-pro baseball games with my grandpa when I was like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old. And I never really understood it then. I mean, I understood that, you know, these guys were semi-pro baseball players, but they came from all over the place to play in my little city that at the time was only like 80,000 people, maybe even less at that time. And, right. and I, I never, until, you know, recent years connected the dots, like, you know, that's a slap in the face to our own baseball community. Like, why isn't our semi-pro baseball team loaded with people from our community? There, there was nobody from our, our city on the semi-pro baseball team. And so if I would have, you know, as a nine-year-old, I guess, <laughs> known something back then, I would have thought of it and looked at it completely differently. But now, even funnier to me, that team doesn't exist anymore. People stopped going to those games. Well, no shit. Right. People stopped going because they don't have a connection to it. It's no connection. <laughs> yeah. So it's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. And th think about this: Mobile has more Hall of Famers in the Baseball Hall of Fame than any other um, place in the country, except I think New York and maybe LA, or, and it may just be New York. Like per capita, it, it's crazy. Like Hank Aaron, Mobile. You had Jake Peavy that just, you know, um, recently pitched in, in Major League Baseball from Mobile. You have all of these players through the generations from Mobile. Um, and if that system was in place, they would have they would have at least started coming up by playing here in Mobile. And uh, it, you can't tell me if you if you had a Hank Aaron that that came out of mobile alabama you couldn't find other players um we, we've had a litany of players i'm I, I could go through the list it's crazy that the amount of players that came out of um 
out of Mobile, Alabama. And, and yet, you know, our system prohibits local players from playing for their, you know, their local team. They, they get drafted and sent out, you know, the other, other side of the country. It's crazy shit, man. Um, well, we went 15 minutes over time, or we're 15 minutes over time right now. I have to rush off because I have a call with Blue Sombrero to talk about fun youth soccer registration stuff. Um, but I, I, I want to make sure I... Good I, luck with that. Yeah, dude, Good luck gonna, with that. It's going to be a disaster. Um, I, uh, I want to make sure I ask you the question that I asked everybody, though, to end interviews. So, in your opinion, now looking at this from a father's perspective, a coaching perspective, having gone through the United States presidential campaign and, and everything attached to that, becoming close to you know, one of the U.S. men's national team's most respected players, um, all things considered, what do you think people need to know at this moment? That we are nowhere near the global level of excellence. Period. I mean, we can we can make excuses. We can, um, and and I've heard a lot of them. You've heard all you've heard all of them as well. Um, but the truth is, is that we're just we're not there. Um, as much as I love the fact that you know we have um, Christian, you know. Pulisic in, in, in Germany, you have McKinney in Germany, you have Sargent in Germany, you have, um, you know, all of these guys migrating to Europe. I'm really happy that they're taking that opportunity. Um, we, for a country as large as ours, as wealthy as ours, we should be much better um, in terms of domestic league play. We should be much better in terms of our national team on the men's side and even on the women's side, and I may get some hate mail for this, but the European countries are starting to invest and take that serious. And we can't just sit on our laurels and think that we're going to be able to just do what we've done all this time and, and stay on top. We're going to have to keep investing in new ideas in, 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 um, resources for the men's and women's sides of the game and um, and recognize that at the same time we are nowhere near the global level of excellence as a whole and and get real with ourselves and go well then what is it going to take because what we're doing is not getting there I mean the other countries around the world they they operate with billions in their soccer economies. And here in the US, even in the recent, uh, I think the news came out yesterday that the CEO of US soccer, Dan Flynn is stepping down. And in the article that one of the articles I read was that they were celebrating this $150 million surplus. They never talked about <laughs> where it came from. You know, like most of that money came from the Copa America 2016. That's where most of the money came from, a one-time, one-off tournament. You know, it's not like ongoing annual $150 million surplus. This is a one-time surplus that they were able to achieve because of that tournament. Now, 
that was messy, right? I mean, Messi and Argentina comes. I, I went. I went. I flew to Chicago and watched Argentina play Panama. The the one time in in my lifetime that Messi would likely play competitive matches here in America. Yeah, I was gonna go, so I went. I took my family. But the 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 truth is is that that hundred fifty million dollars is pennies in comparison to the rest of the world. So we're celebrating failure. Not I'm not saying one hundred fifty million. You know. Like we shouldn't celebrate that we got 150 million, but I, what I'm saying is, is that we should recognize that that 150 million is only a fraction of what it should be, and that's where we are missing out. That's why we're not reaching a global level of excellence because we don't get real with ourselves. We celebrate these these little things, this 150 million, but the rest of the world is over here celebrating billions. It'd be like a race that starts in Jacksonville on Interstate 10, and that interstate runs all the way out to the Pacific Ocean in L.A., all right? It runs right through my city. If every country in the world lined up at that starting line in Jacksonville and took off for L.A., all the top-level countries in the world are, are at the finish line. They're celebrating in L.A. We made it. We're at the global level of excellence. Meanwhile, U.S. soccer stopped in New Orleans and, and saw L.A. on the sign, didn't realize it was Louisiana, and celebrated. Oh, look at us. We went, you know, <laughs> a quarter of the way there. Give us some kudos. It's like, come on, man, wake up. We're not there yet. And, and for some reason, we have this inferiority complex, like we can't admit it, that, we're, that, that we're, we're not there yet. I don't know, man. That's where I land on it. And I, if we would just make the main thing the main thing i think we could solve a lot of our issues and for me the main thing is american soccer should be the best soccer country on earth that should be our goal at least and if that's our goal then that should govern every decision and guide every conversation that we have not what we do now not what we've done in the past but that's our goal so then how do we get to that and everything should be on the table to help us get there, not just, well, well, we've done it this way for 20 years. We've done it this way for 50 years. We're not, you know, how can we how can we make what you're talking about work with what we're doing? That's not the right mindset. The right mindset is this is our goal. This is our aim. Now let's put all the cards on the table and figure out what is the best and fastest path to get there. And then everyone should be all in in getting there together. That's where I live. Daniel for president. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, man! I liked it. That was good. That was that was definitely a, a top three answer for for that question that I love to ask. So I appreciate you being honest and open about that, and and donating more than two minutes of your time to this cause because I, I feel like this 50 minute interview will give uh, people some good perspective on, on the man behind the two minute podcast. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. And a big thank you to my guest on today's show, Daniel Workman. If you would like to find links to all of Daniel's work and some other relevant episodes of the 343 Podcast, you can find all of that on 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, all spelled out, .com. And that is also where you can go to help to support and fund this podcast. And I'm talking specifically about the coaching education programs that we offer on 343coaching.com. And with a testimonial about his experience with one of our online programs, here is a little note from Tom Byer. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I like about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense, and it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop, um, not just you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. Once again, you can find all of that information at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, all spelled out, .com. All right, we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.